0: I will tell you that the comments that he made when I was in the White House, I thought, were vile, they were hate-filled, and they were racial in tone. The
1: foul language. S-hole countries. Referred to these countries as shitholes.
0: It's ugly. It's, it's bigoted. It's racist.
1: Look, the president um, hasn't said he didn't use strong language. I want him to come in from everywhere. Everywhere.
2: This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind.
1: And I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
2: Heather, we are at a breaking point. The Democrats in the House and the Senate seem finally to be holding their ground, saying they're going to shut down the government unless Republicans allow a deal that will protect illegal immigrants who were brought here as children, the so-called dreamers, some 800,000 of them. It's fitting, I suppose, that this issue may, in fact, cause the biggest legislative fight of the Trump presidency thus far. Trump built his political career in some ways on being aggressive in terms of his anti-immigration stances. He announced his candidacy for president, calling Mexican immigrants rapists. He surged in the polls after supporting a Muslim ban. He began his presidency with a chaotic travel ban that then was opposed in the courts. The issue of immigration is one that Trump sees As a winning issue, this is, in a way, a sweet spot in his mind as to what his base wants. His base wants him to close the borders. As the world becomes more and more porous, Trump wants America to shut out the rest of the world. It seems to be baked into so much of his action, his attitude, even his character. It is very much Trump.
1: And yet, interestingly enough, it did seem for a bit as though he might be able to find a third way, because, of course, while he did launch his campaign by calling Mexicans rapists, he also has gone on, on a couple of occasions, to tell Dreamers they didn't have anything to worry about and to talk about coming up with a solution for immigration. And realistically, after all, uh, it's been a real problem. The issue of undocumented immigrants has been around for a long time, like half a century, really, since we got rid of the seasonal worker programs and uh, past an Immigration Act in 1965 that ended the national quotas. You know, that caused a crisis that presidents since really haven't been able to handle. You know, Reagan tried to solve it and couldn't. George H.W. Bush tried to solve it. George and W.
2: Bush couldn't either.
1: Obama as well. I mean, for a while, it seemed almost as if Trump might be able to be the deal maker who could figure out somehow that he could recalibrate immigration.
2: But the Senate had a deal. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin had a bipartisan immigration deal, and they said they had agreed on major points and were getting agreement from the Trump White House and Trump himself. But then suddenly, flip-flop, he's angry and he throws a tantrum in the Oval Office, stuns those who gathered, not just Durbin and Graham, but other senators were called in at the last minute. And as Lindsey Graham said a few days later, the Trump that I knew on Tuesday, where did he go by Thursday? That first Trump was the person ready to make a deal, and by the time we got to the Oval Office on Thursday, it's like he simply vanished on us, and he was replaced by a petulant man talking about shithole countries, speaking specifically of Haitians and African nations. We don't want people from these shithole countries. We want someone like those Norwegians.
1: But, Ron, it's not just a temper tantrum. I think the Republicans and Trump are trying to throw us back to the era before 1965 when we had a major bipartisan reworking of our immigration system that was designed to focus on skills and family ties rather than countries of origin. You know, Trump and the Republican Party are calling for a system that really looks much like our very old laws, the ones from before World War II that did discriminate based on countries of origin. Are you coming from Haiti? Are you coming from Norway? You know, I think it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of this debate. There's just so much going on. There's the DACA, there's the Dreamers, there's the people who are refugees. I mean, it's very confusing to figure out who's saying what and who wants what. But there is a big picture here, and that is that we are looking at a major revision of who we are as a country. You know, are we a nation that believes that all human beings are equal, or do we really think that people from some countries are better than people from others?
2: Okay, time to bring in our guest this week. We're excited to have Tom Jelton, reporter for NPR News for quite some time. He's covered so very much and has been covering immigration, the immigration debate this week. He's the author of A Nation of Nations, A Great American Immigration Story. Tom, welcome. Well, so good to be with you. So, Tom, let's lay out present tense here. There Five major issues at play here uh, in the hands of Trump, in the hands of Democrats, and a push and shove that's occurring. One is protecting the Dreamers. Those 800,000 folks brought here illegally as children who are now living in America. Uh, Two is border security funding. That's been going, certainly racing through campaign rhetoric right up to now, the time in office. Three, restricting what President Trump calls chain migration or family-based immigration. And four, uh, reforming the visa lottery system. Uh, finally there is also the temporary protected status issue all those folks especially from El Salvador 200,000 folks who come here under duress when there's havoc in those countries we offer them sanctuary a refuge in America there's hundreds of thousands of folks in that category trump wants them to go back home too this is a big nexus mm. a cluster of issues five big issues what does trump want here what are his positions? How are Democrats responding? Lay him out, Tom, as an expert here.
0: I think the bottom line is that President Trump just thinks there are too many immigrants coming into this country, and that includes Illegal immigrants, people who are here without papers, undocumented immigrants, but also legal immigrants, too many immigrants and the wrong kind of immigrants. I'm now sort of trying to channel President Trump here because he has said that we're getting too many bad people coming in. And he's not just referring to people coming here illegally. He has used as an example, you know, some people who have been guilty of crimes here, some of whom have arrived legally, some who have arrived illegally. And what he wants to do is to take a pause. in this. And, you know, we're now at a point in our history where approximately 14 percent of the U.S. population was born outside the country. That is almost back to where we were in the beginning of the 20th century. He basically says we just have too many immigrants here. And he says that he wants to continue to bring in immigrants, but only those immigrants who have some specific merit to offer. That's what he says is his bottom line.
1: So, what do the Democrats want out of these same issues that you know you're giving this overarching picture of President Trump wanting to stop immigration in general? The Democrats have their own stand on it, and they have, I think, an ideology behind it as well. You want to walk us through that?
0: Well, I would say that bottom line for the Democrats is quite simply they don't want to send people back. They don't want to deport people. People who are here, who are living productive lives, that's the reason that they're so focused on um, on protecting the Dreamers, the DACA population. That's the reason they're so focused on protecting those immigrants who have come here uh, with a temporary protected status Uh, you know that once you get into sort of the nuts and bolts of what our immigration policy should be in the future what should be done in the border what kind of criteria we should use in selecting the immigrants that come here then you're going to see more of a debate and more of a debate among Democrats themselves but I think the one thing that they agree on is we shouldn't be deporting people
2: Tom, you know, you've been around Washington for a while, as I have been. You remember the debates around immigration under George W. Bush and Barack Obama. I was covering Bush. I covered Obama, too. It's interesting how there were issues that came up, not really the issues we hear from Trump. They were, in a way, almost more technical issues. You remember George W. Bush starts out. Bush, of course, speaks Spanish. That was one of his strong suits. He spoke during the campaign. He meets with Vicente Fox, the Mexican leader. There's all sorts of high hopes. But then almost by the hour, by the week and month, he starts running into Republican opposition in his own party against giving a, a kind of embrace To This idea of people coming to America that may in fact be taking jobs that was already in the rhetoric. You go through the Bush presidency. Nothing happens. I mean, finally in 2007, he's almost out of office. There's a vote on cloture. Nothing occurs. Barack Obama a man who, as he said, often represents the face of the world. Uh, Nothing happens significantly with Obama. He has lots of executive orders that get overturned. Why do you think Bush and Obama failed at getting anything that was significant on immigration? What, what either went wrong there? How was the country not receptive? How was Congress not receptive to pushing forward change?
0: You know, I mean, that's a that's an eminently political uh, question. I mean, it has never been a really popular cause to embrace. You know, in theory, Americans, you know, believe their country should be open to people from other lands. But You know, that's it's kind of long been a sore point in American political culture.
2: You just distilled it down rather beautifully there. It's never been a big winner for presidents.
0: Never has (laughs) been. Or
2: for Congresses. You know, it's a thing in theory, but then in practice, wait a minute, this is the country where I live. Who are these people coming? And what will that mean for my life? Something that we often don't maybe even talk about, but we feel. Well,
0: and one thing to keep in mind, Ron, is this is not unique to America. I mean, I lived in Europe for four years. Uh, opposition to the other yeah. is a kind of a universal tribal impulse. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, hold on just a minute here. Um, before we go to a break, I'd like to point out that one American president did rise to power by talking about immigrants and welcoming immigrants and being— being a nation built on immigrants and making sure that was our foundational principle. And that was Abraham Lincoln. So yes, this runs as a theme in American history, but it is not our only theme. It's a moment that we're looking at right now that looks very much like the 1890s or the 1850s or the early, or the 1920s, but this is not our only story.
2: There's no doubt about that. You know, and the fact is it's a back and forth between, in a way, competing and complementary ideals Uh, that sometimes fit and sometimes don't in the American character. Tom, Heather, stand by. After the break, we'll talk about why President Trump isn't the first person in Washington to urge more immigration from Scandinavia. Okay, we're back. Allegedly, last week... President Trump made it clear that he was not so pleased with immigration from Haiti, El Salvador, and Africa. He'd like more immigrants from Norway. Hmm. Wonder what is about Norway that catches his fancy. I just I'm confused here. Tom Jelton, you're the author of A Nation of Nations, a Great.
0: American immigration story came out in 2015, right? It came out in September of 2015, which was 1 month before the 50th anniversary of the passage of the 1965 Immigration Act. And I and I say that I don't think in my judgment any law passed in the 20th century was more important in terms of its effect on American society, the American identity, the character, the demographic uh, profile of America than that law.
2: Tom, um, walk us up to 1965. Help us understand uh, across the 20th century uh, how we evolved and how we arrive at that point of precipitation in 1965 with that extraordinary piece of legislation?
0: Well, at the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, uh, there was a real flood of immigrants coming into this country and a concern that there were too many coming in. And before that, you know, we didn't have this kind of visa policy policy per se. I mean, there were rules about who could come, but there wasn't a, you know, a really defined visa policy until the early years of the 20th century. And that, when those laws, and that first 1917 and later 1924, when those laws were enacted, it was, believe it or not, on the basis of alleged scientific evidence about which countries produced the best people. There was a, uh, Commission set up by Congress uh, under the leadership of a, a senator from Vermont, William Dillingham, was established in 1907. And they went actually over to Europe and interviewed people and ended up coming up with a 41 or 42 volume final report that included something called the Dictionary of Races or Peoples, in which they offered these generalizations about people from different countries and what character or qualities they had uh, the Slavs uh, this uh, in the dictionary the Slavs were considered to be fanatical in religion careless about punctuality um, not real respectful of honesty Italians were considered to be excitable impulsive imaginative, but not very practical. The Scandinavians were considered, on the other hand, the purest type. And those kind of prejudicial feelings then influenced our immigration policy. So Congress came up with this system of allocating visas on the basis of where you came from. And There was an effort to bring in more people with the good qualities, that is people from Northern and Western Europe, and fewer people from those countries that allegedly produced inferior immigrants. You know, uh, China had 100 uh, visa slots a year. Countries in Africa, the entire continent of Africa had something like 1,200 visas available per year, whereas Germany had 50,000 visas Mm. available per year. Norway and Ireland had the largest share of visas um, as a share of their population. Uh, So incredibly biased. And, you know, the idea was then in the 1960s that finally we needed to get rid of this quota system altogether and move to something else.
1: In the wake of World War II, it was time to relook at the way peoples interacted across the world. So how did that play out?
0: Well, you know, it was interesting. The President Kennedy running for office in nineteen sixty made this a big issue. But you know, interestingly enough, in his first three State of the Union addresses after being elected, he never mentioned immigration reform again. The national origin quote it was, it was only when President Johnson came in and said that he was going to do everything he could to advance President Kennedy's agenda. January of 1964, his first State of the Union, just two months after President Kennedy was assassinated, President Johnson made this big commitment, said, we're going to change the national origin quotas, we're going to get rid of them. And it was his administration that really did work to bring this reform about.
1: So so one of the things that is in that that law the 1965 law is one of the things that's caused trouble nowadays and that's the whole concept of chain migration. Now I'd like to right. point out that immigrants always from time immemorial, have moved as families and have sent one person over first to check out the area and to see if it's a place where the family can be supported, and then they've reached back for people. That happens. It's a natural way to do it. It's a natural way to do it, and it happens internally as well as externally. It's just the way people move. But all of a sudden nowadays, uh, President Trump is talking about chain migration, and the history of chain migration in Congress in 1965 is really very interesting. I think for this moment, can you walk us through that?
0: Yeah, you know, when President Johnson, in that January 1964 State of the Union message, spoke about this, he said, A nation that was built by the immigrants of all lands can ask those who now seek admission, what can you do for our country?
1: But we should not be asking, in what country were you born?
0: His original reform proposal would have given first preference to immigrants who had skills and education and training that were considered especially advantageous to the country. When that proposal went up to Capitol Hill, the chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee, a congressman from Ohio named Michael Feehan, didn't like it. He refused even to hold hearings on it. And it was pretty clear from what he said at the time and what his allies said at the time that they thought that this kind of revamping of immigration policy would bring in people from countries in Africa, countries in Asia would, that were considered inferior or didn't weren't thought to have you know the character that we wanted would somehow dilute mm-hmm. our European heritage or something like o- that or
1: revolutionary in the 1960s they were worried True. about African revolutions as well yes
0: mm-hmm. so what Fian proposed is that instead of having that kind of top preference go to people with certain skills in education he suggested that the top preference should be people that had relatives here already and made the kind of the merit system much lower in terms of a preference and the result is that as of today close to 70% of all immigrants coming to this country legally are coming on the basis of family ties there was this idea and it was it's kind of ironic at the time in the 1960s, that if you prioritize people who had relatives here already, you would just get the same mix of population that was already here because there were very few Asians here. There were very few Africans here, very few Middle Easterners here. So if you prioritize people who already had relatives here, you would get more of the same. It was that thinking that proved to be completely erroneous. I think what happened is that they did not realize that the demand to move to the United States was no longer coming from Europe. It was coming from the developing world. And all you needed was one student coming here or one person coming with an employment visa, and that person would have an entire extended family who wanted to follow them here. So once you gave preference to family ties— That's when you really open the doors.
2: But, you know, the way that's just exactly what Trump is now pushing against and the Republicans are saying, let's reverse that. Let's not have more of the same. And this brings us back to shithole countries. It all comes back to shithole countries, doesn't it? My God, that has left a scar on me, a brain scar, as it has the nation. This man is a president, for goodness sake. What is he saying? And how do I defend him as I go around the world? Yes, that's the man we elected. And he is saying that about, frankly, so many people across the globe. Heather, isn't what we're talking about here uh, right at the core DNA of what Americans see when they look in the mirror? The things that have defined the country in terms of principle
1: yes it is ron at the very heart of who we are and it actually is also at the heart of one of my favorite stories about abraham lincoln and believe it or not it's a story about abraham lincoln that almost nobody knows
2: that is impossible i mean the the most covered human in american history and a story that people don't know that's one of your favorites
1: that's right and it doesn't show up in most of his biographies but the story is this you know As you know, Lincoln came from a poor background and had access to very few books as a young man. And one of them was so important to him that it was actually put in that biography. And this is the story of James Riley who was shipwrecked in Africa and sold into slavery. And in that book, Riley talks about what it was like to be examined as if he were an animal and what it was like to be treated as if he were an animal who was not a terribly valuable one, the terrible treatment he received as a slave. And Lincoln thought about this, and he realized a larger principle was at stake here. And what he realized was that once you admit the principle that some men are better than others— then there's absolutely nothing stopping someone from making you one of the people at the bottom. And this is a principle he takes forward with him. And he takes it forward in his arguments later about slavery, of course, but he took it forward in the 1850s. Because in the 1850s is a period when America had a lot of people coming from other countries and certain states had begun to pass laws that discriminated against immigrants. Massachusetts was famous for its anti-Irish laws and California was famous for its laws against Chinese immigrants. And Americans had begun to elect law Lawmakers to Congress, who talked about keeping America a white man's country. And Lincoln realized from the beginning that if you began to discriminate against certain groups of people based on their color, Or their country of origin, you were starting on a slope that could only lead to despotism. That is, once you admitted the principle that some people were better than others, there was no way to stop. You had had given away the game by giving away that principle. And he wrote a letter to his friend Joshua Speed, who was from Kentucky, in which he said, you know, we can't do this. Because as a nation, as he said, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. And then he went on to say, but if we start to discriminate against Irish or Chinese or immigrants, uh, the same way that we now have barriers against African Americans, pretty soon the Declaration of Independence is going to have to read, as he said, all men are created equal except, as he said, Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. And Lincoln went on to speed saying, when it comes to this— I should prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. Mm. And when Lincoln ran for president in 1860, the Republican Party ran on a platform that year that called for immigration. And Lincoln ran on that platform in 1860. And most people don't recognize that. But that whole concept that it's not about how hard you work, it's not necessarily about whether or not you are contributing. It's about whether or not Americans believe that all human beings are equal Or whether they believe that some people are better than others. And for me, that's the moment we're at right now at this minute and need to make a choice about.
2: Tom, how do Lincoln's words strike you today? You spend so much time reporting and writing about immigration.
0: Well, I think that what Heather is elegantly mentioning is this gap that has existed in our country from the very earliest days between our ideals and the reality. If you look at the words of the Declaration of Independence, they could not be more clear. Or if you go back to George Washington, who told a group of Irish immigrants The bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respectable stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions." That was the ideal that in the Declaration of Independence. But you know, just a couple of years after George Washington said that, the U.S. Congress passed its first immigration law in which it offered U.S. citizenship only to free white persons. So you've had this from the very beginning. You've had this wonderful statement of uh, ideals that America, uniquely in the world, is supposed to stand for against the reality of discrimination, racism. And it's the gap between that ideal and that reality that not for 100 years did we really address it. And it was Abraham Lincoln who finally said, if this is in fact our ideal, then we have to change our laws and our policies in order to make it real.
2: Uh, Tom Jelton, it is a joy to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks for including me in this conversation. Thanks, it's, been, it's been great for me as well.
2: Uh, Heather Cox Richardson, always a joy to chat.
1: Always fun, Ron.
2: I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On.
1: If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show.
2: Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out, Carry On. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash Our email address is freakout and Carry On at WBUR.org.
1: Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Katherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or
2: its employees.